Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, our text this morning, verses 18 to uh, 23. Thus far, the Apostle Paul has been introducing himself to this church. He has given an explanation of his orthodoxy, what he believes concerning the Christ, concerning the scriptures and how what he teaches about Christ is in accordance with what has been revealed beforehand in the holy scriptures. He's eager to get to Rome. He's eager to preach the gospel in Rome, not only to the people who are there, but the implication also is that he's eager to stand alongside them, to join arms with them and preach the gospel to the others that are there in Rome also. Last week, we went over some of the Uh, most well-known passages within the book of Romans, which is verses 16 and 17, when the apostle says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Talking about the gospel, talking about how the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. His righteous judgment upon sin, the righteousness of who he is by his very nature, the righteousness that is imputed to the believer. Everything of the righteousness of God in those particular aspects are revealed in the gospel. Because we see no greater uh, sense of God's justice than when he pours out his wrath upon his only son and that Christ satisfies the justice of his father. We see that in God doing so, not only is he pouring out his wrath upon Christ, But we're recognizing Christ being the one who had perfectly obeyed the law of God. He was righteous. He was perfect in every aspect of who he was. He actively fulfilled the law of God to its perfection, was declared righteous. And then it is through faith that the righteousness of Christ, his perfection is credited to you as if you had done it. All of these things revealed within the gospel. It is the good news. And as the apostle says, it is all of faith. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It begins with faith. It ends with faith. It's all of faith. There is no works to be done in order to gain acceptance with God. The righteous man shall live by faith. These are the words that Martin Luther uh, was studying whenever he came to the understanding that the justice of God is not something to be despised. It is not something to hate as what he once did. But it was something then that was a great comfort to him, recognizing the righteousness of God that is being referenced here. It was almost as if he felt like he was born anew, is what he says. The gates of heaven swung open, and he looked at the righteousness and the justice of God completely different than what he did before. All through faith, and that's why the reformers were so adamant about justification by faith alone. There is no works of righteousness to do is what the Romish church was doing at that particular time. And not just the Romish church, but there were so many even today that still do the same things that are trying to work their way to the Lord or trying to gain acceptance with God. And the message of Paul is still the message of today. It's all of faith. Saving faith. And we, we talked about saving faith. And what is saving faith? It's not just agreeing to the facts of the gospel. It's having a knowledge of the gospel. It's agreeing that it is true. 
And then you have that last aspect of saving faith, which is trusting, which is basically saying, I believe I have a knowledge of the gospel. I believe that it is true. And I believe that what it reveals about Christ and what he did was for me. That is trusting. Trusting in the gospel. Trusting in Christ who is revealed in the gospel. It is the good news. The gospel itself is good news. And that's why the the apostle is eager to preach it. He's not ashamed of it. It confounds the wise. As the apostle says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That God chose the foolishness of preaching to save some. Whereas a lot of the philosophers of the day. They'd like to flaunt their intellects. We know from 1 Corinthians 1. That natural man left in his state. Even in all his philosophies and thinking and all of that will never come to a knowledge of God because it is something that only God can grant. And God grants the knowledge of who he is, of what Christ has done through the gospel message and it alone. There is no other message to give an unbeliever whereby they may be saved. It is the gospel. That's the instrument that God uses to bring his people to faith. It is good news. But in expressing the good news... The apostle also expresses the bad news that we may appreciate the good news. And that's where we're going into today. Why is the gospel the good news? Well, you can't understand the good news unless you're examining the bad news. We know the good in light of the bad. So the apostle spoken of justification by faith alone Uh, No attempts of man will ever satisfy apart from Christ. And this is really where he's heading into in these particular verses that he is primarily focused upon the Gentiles. And Gentiles, we're talking about anyone who's not a Jew. All the nations who did not have the written revelation of God. This is who he has in mind as he is uh, taking us through these verses here, beginning of verse 18. Really, you find some things that are not very popular here. Because what these these passages express is that God is angry. We don't like to think of God being angry. People of the world, they don't like to think of a God who is angry. They like to think of a God who is love. Who is all love. A God who would be accepting of anything. As long as we acknowledge him. And what, what the Lord says here in this passage is completely opposite of that. God is angry. And he is angry at all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And the only way to satisfy the anger of God is revealed in the good news, which is Christ. And that's the only way. So God is angry with the wicked every day, as Psalm 11 says. God is not accepting of any form of worship that man may bring about. God abhors idolatry. And we may look at that and say, well, that's not really being done here in America. It's not as if you know, we're doing what a lot of other cultures have done throughout the centuries. We're not making little wooden statues and we're not bowing down and worshiping them. And yet... There may not be anything visible like that, but man is absolutely committing idolatry, even here in the West. How does God feel about that? You know, that's the thing. 
People say all the time, well, God is love, God is love, and God is absolutely love. Yes, he is. Absolutely. But God, and what are the, as we've talked about before, the, the attribute of God that is probably elevated above any other within Scripture, that is emphasized more, that is written more, is that God is holy. And because God is holy, that he is unique in his being of who he is. He is absolute perfection, the epitome of purity. His holiness cries out for justice against sin. Because that is right. And because God is holy in all his perfections. You talk about God's holiness, you're talking about the sum of all the divine attributes of God. Because he is holy, because he is perfect, because he is in a category all to himself. And righteousness is part of his very nature, then he must do what is right. And what is right is to punish sin. We don't like to think of that. It makes us uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to talk about God's righteous anger, but it's something necessary for us to understand and to know. Because there is so much going on out there that is blatant rebellion against God. There are so many misconceptions about God that is out there today because no one likes to talk about these things to actually bring about what is the, what is the truth of God when it comes to the, the issues of our day. No one likes to, to talk about that. But this is where we're at. This is what the passage deals with. God is angry. God has made himself known to man. And man has taken that knowledge of God and suppressed it in unrighteousness. This is the bad news, but it's in light of the good. This is why when we come to understand Christ and the gospel and and everything that God has done for us and his son, that's why it makes us appreciate it so much. Because we're, we're the ones in view here. And verses 18 and following, that was us. But God has delivered us from that. And he did so through the Son and the Son alone. So as we work our way through this, let us remember this is what God delivered us from. And this is what we have to remember that the unbelieving who are out there have upon them. That perhaps, and I pray that it would, make us have hearts that are desirous to see the lost saved. It's one thing to be able to point at someone and to tell them how horrible they are because of the blatant rebellion that they are in. But it's another thing to recognize the state that they are in, that our hearts would yearn for their salvation. And that's where we need to be. Be appreciative of what God done, recognizing the state that the unbeliever is in even now, that we would give him the good news in light of the bad. If you would, let's stand together. And we will read verses 18 to 23. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. And let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. 
But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and of four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you again to give you thanks. Thank you for the grace and mercy that we have received through Christ, not of our own doing. Father, we readily acknowledge not one of us here was deserving of your salvation in your Son. Not one of us here was deserving of this grace that was bestowed upon us, of, of Christ's work in taking upon himself your wrath, your righteous indignation against sin. We're not worthy of that. We're not worthy of Christ to take our place as he did. So, Father, thank you. Thank you that he did. Thank you that he satisfied your justice against us. Thank you that as he ascended into heaven, that you and Christ have sent the Spirit of God to us in the fullest measure, that we may be brought to faith, that we may be changed in our thinking, changed in our hearts, Father, to understand the state of things as they really are and to know you most of all. Thank you for the gift of salvation, this gift of knowing you and of serving you, of being loved by you. And we pray as we work our way through this passage that the Spirit of God would do a mighty work within us. Give us receptive hearts to receive your word and to seek to apply it. That our hearts would yearn, Father, for those that are still under the righteous judgment of God. Father, do a mighty work within us. Give us the comfort, Father, knowing that we are at peace. Give us such joy knowing what Christ has accomplished for us. But give us the resolve, Father, to seek after the lost. And that if it is your will that they would be brought to faith, use us as instruments in your hand. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's children said, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so in verse 18, verse 18 through 20, again, are well-known verses within the book of Romans. Um, these particular verses are often used, especially within apologetics. Whenever we are defending the faith, we often reference these verses, or when we're talking about the righteous indignation of God across the board to all, we reference these verses Talking about the existence of God again, these verses now are not just used in that kind of a academic setting in order that we may use them in order to, to combat unbelief, but these verses are there in order to really uh, give us a little bit of a wake-up call at times, even for believers. Sometimes we can get so at ease in Zion that we forget what it is that God has delivered us from. It's easy to forget especially if we are not fully concentrating ourselves upon the majesty of God. Often Christians can, can get very arrogant, they can get very prideful, and, and when they do so, they forget. Where is it that God has brought me from? And these verses really 
Help us to reflect upon that, as well as giving us an understanding of, of the state of all men before God. Beforehand, the apostle had said that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Here he says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. This is um, a well-known word. We may not know it reading it in English, but it is apocalypto, where we get the word apocalypse, where we get the word revelation. Uh, the book of Revelation is the apocalypse of Christ. And while that word gets used a lot, especially within the culture, we talk about the apocalypse. We're talking about some kind of great destruction that is coming upon the world or whatever. Uh, it, it simply means unveiling. The book of Revelation is the unveiling of Christ. It, it, is, it is placing Christ before our very eyes. In this text here, it is carrying the same meanings. That the righteousness of God is unveiled. The righteous wrath of God is unveiled. It is made known, is the idea there. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, there is a temptation there in order to place these in two particular different uh, categories as ungodliness and unrighteousness. But really, they all have one heading, which is sin. You can place them in different categories as far as ungodliness in the sense of, of all the sins that are committed against the Lord himself or the unrighteousness and how we deal with one another, but it's all sin. We, we can go back and forth and, and uh, place them in this category or that, but it, what is it giving? It's giving us the totality of sin. God is angry. His righteous wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And this is going across the board. This isn't just uh, talking about uh, the Jewish folks and how they have rejected the Lord, especially under the Old Covenant, all the times that we see that throughout the Old Testament, that God is angry with his people. He chastises his people. Well, how does he feel about the nations? How does he feel about the Gentiles? Well, this passage here is giving us that indication. His wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It encompasses the totality of sin against God. Perhaps uh, looking at it uh, in the ways that we were talking about, what, does, what did natural man do? What, what is it that the Gentiles were doing? Well, their feeble attempts at religion, serving God, their interactions with one another, their conduct towards one another. It was all unrighteousness and ungodliness. You know, we, we, we hear about um, about people who are of different religions and, and all of this, and, and we say things like, well, they're sincere. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Joel Osteen did this on Larry King. He was talking about the sincerity of specifically dealing with the Hindus. Does sincerity somehow please God even though it's wrong? No. It doesn't please God. It's an affront to God. It's an offense to God. Natural man, regardless of how sincere that he may be, you can be sincerely wrong. We know that. 
And all his, all his attempts at religion, all the particular gods that he would come up with, even in the book of Acts, you have Paul who goes to the Areopagus in Athens, and he sees a, basically a memorial there for the unknown god. It's like we need to cover all our bases here. So we have, we have Zeus, and we have Poseidon, and we have all these other gods, but we have to have one to an unknown god in case we forgot him. And this is where the Apostle Paul says, I want to tell you about this one. He's the one who made heaven and earth. He's the one that determined the days in which you would live and where you would live, etc., etc. If natural man was fine, left in his state and left in his sincerity of whatever religion he was part of, the worst thing that you could ever do is give him the gospel. Because then you would, bring, you would be bringing guilt upon him. You ought to just leave him to themselves. If God is going to accept sincerity, just leave him to themselves. But that's not what we find. Instead, we find that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. What does it mean? What does it mean that the wrath of God is revealed? Now, looking in the Old Testament, you can find a number of instances in which God brought judgment. You can look at the flood. The flood was a massive judgment, a cosmic judgment of God upon all ungodliness and unrighteousness. You can see how God judged his own people. You can see the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, that, that it was raining down fire and brimstone, this specifically from God. You can see how the Lord uses one nation in order to judge another nation. All of these things from God. And God makes it known that it is from him. It's not, especially when you're looking in the Old Testament and you find passages which are expressing how God is using Assyria, the rod of his anger against his own people. Or he's using Babylon as the rod of his anger against his own people because they have forsaken him. That this isn't just one nation going to conquer another, but this is God who is moving this into play, who is bringing this about in order to judge his people or to judge the other nations. An example of that is, well, listen to this kind of language first. Isaiah chapter 13 We read a very similar language that we find within the New Testament. This is a judgment against Babylon. But in verse 9, in verse 9 and 10, we read, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation. And he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will... The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Then I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and, the, and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. And this is a judgment against Babylon. The ones that he used in order to bring this judgment against Babylon was the Medo Persian Empire. But this was from the Lord, a judgment from him. You read that similar language in the New Testament. That language of judgment, as the Lord raises up, or yeah, raises up, we can use that word, it's okay. Raises up the Romans in order to come down on his people. In Matthew chapter 24, beginning of verse 29, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. 
And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. This is judgment language that is used of when Christ brought the Romans down upon the people of Israel. That language also, the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light and the stars, that's also used of a prophecy against uh, Egypt in the book of Ezekiel. It's used uh, against the people of God in Joel chapter 2. This is language that is expressing God using an instrument to do it, but it is from him. He's the one bringing the judgment. So we see a number of instances in which we can look and say, okay, the wrath of God revealed from heaven. We can see instances of that. But how do we view that today? How, how can we see the wrath of God today? If God is angry with the wicked every day and God is revealing his wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Charles Hodge says this, It is not necessary, therefore, to infer from the use of this word that the apostle meant to intimate that the purpose of God to punish sin was made known by any special revelation. That purpose is manifested in various ways, by the actual punishment of sin, by the inherent tendency of moral evil to produce misery, by the voice of conscience. So how is it that God can reveal his wrath from heaven? Well, various things, just as Charles Hodge brings out, talking about the conscience itself, the sorrow and the guilt that we carry. That could be one. It could be allowing sin to take its proper course, to let it take its intended course, to allow sin to have the, the misery that it produces within the lives of others. Death. Death is a result of sin. And all of this is but a foretaste of the final wrath that is to come. I mean, think of this. Think of the things that are going on in our own day and the misery that is brought about because of the consequences of your actions and your choices. You know, one particular man, and I won't tell you his name because he disqualified himself very bad, very badly. But one thing he did say that was probably not original to him, so I'll say it. He said... God gives you the greatest of gifts in the prerogative of choice. But God does not give you the privilege of determining a different outcome of what the choice entails. The consequences are bound by the choice. You have the freedom to choose whatever, but you don't have the freedom to choose a different outcome. And you think about the things that are happening today and the misery that is being caused in the lives of so many. I was reading... Um, I was reading just heart-wrenching accounts of people who have fallen into this transgenderism. I was, I was reading of a 12-year-old girl who felt that she was becoming a boy. So at age 13, she came out to her mom, and then they began the process of transitioning her. So that by 15, she had a double mastectomy puberty blockers, all kinds of different surgeries. 
And by the age of 17, she realized what kind of mistakes she made. But what do you do? The damage is done. And choices have such miserable consequences. Where one in particular who transitioned to a man, detransitioned, got married, was able to have a baby, said she would give anything to be able to breastfeed her baby, but she can't. Because she had a double mastectomy also. There are things that are going on in our own day that are being accepted by the culture that causes nothing but misery and pain. There was one man who had transitioned when he was 42 years old to a woman. Eight years later, he realized what a mistake he made. But the damage is done. And so now he's a big advocate of uh, uh, against transgenderism transitioning all that he said this he said you will hear the media say regret is rare but they are not reading my inbox which is full of messages from transgender individuals who want the life and body back that was taken from them by cross-sex hormones surgery and living under a new identity after detransitioning i know the truth hormones and surgery may alter appearances but nothing changes the immutable fact of your sex. There are things that are going on that cause misery in the lives of those who make the choices that they do. And the, the terrible part is, is that when it's figured out and they realize what a mistake that was made, you have to live with the consequences. But not just in that realm. It can be with anything. Any particular uh, rebellion against God, regardless how it manifests itself, any rebellion against God will cause misery. Because this is a judgment of God upon unbelieving man. It causes misery. Why? Why is it that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men? Because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They hold it down forcefully. What they know about God, what they know to be right, in, that is innate within themselves, as Paul will go into in Romans 2, that even man has an understanding of what is right and what is not. And what do they do? They suppress the truth. They hold it down because of their particular desires. They want to do this. And so they must suppress the truth that they know to be right in order to carry it out. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. How? What truth are we talking about? He says, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. The truth that they are suppressing is the knowledge of God. They suppress the knowledge of God in unrighteousness. 
God has made himself evident, made his, his, himself known to them. It is evident within them, meaning the mind. The mind can capture the understanding of the existence of God, and not just the existence of a God who exists, but the attributes of God, certain characteristics of God. Man, in his natural state, can come to understand. He says in verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So that they are without excuse. What kind of things? What, what, what things are in view? What do you think of creation itself? In Psalm 8, for example. Psalm 8, the psalmist says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? In Psalm 19, the psalmist says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. In the book of Acts, you find the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, who had just performed a miracle. They're in Lystra, and the crowds are gathering around, and the crowds are thinking that they are gods. And so in verse 12 we read, And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without a witness, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So how is it that God is known? Well, he's known through creation. What things can be known about him? Well, if you consider the things that even science would teach us, is that the universe had a beginning, time, space, matter had a beginning. So if we just contemplate that for a minute, if time had a beginning, that means the first cause was timeless or eternal. If matter came into existence, that means that the first cause was spiritual. If, if you have space that come into existence, that the first cause is infinite. And then you see the power of God being able to create it all. You see the wisdom of God and the intricacies of all the life that he creates, being able to sustain it and hold it together is showing the goodness of God, the goodness of God in allowing the rain to rain on the just and the unjust alike and to allow man to enjoy life. That is the goodness of God being able to be understood through what has been made. You see the beauty and the majesty of God and all the creation that he, is, that he has brought about. There are so many times that you look at at beautiful scenes, whether, whether perhaps your thing may be the mountains. Maybe you love looking at uh, pictures of the mountains and the beauty of the mountains, or you're looking at the sea, uh, or whatever it is. You're admiring the beauty and the majesty of creation, but it reflects the beauty and the majesty 
of the Creator. So there are things that are in creation that are clearly seen and understood. And that's what is referred to as general revelation. General revelation, God has disclosed himself through a means that even unregenerate man can understand and contemplate with his mind. Not not to bring him to salvation, because you need special revelation for that. But general revelation leaves all men without excuse. What do we think of those? And growing up, I heard this a lot. Well, what about um, those who who live in the remotest parts of the earth and, and have never heard the gospel? Surely God makes provision for them. And as much as our hearts would like to say, oh, I'm sure that, you know, that's very true and all of that. We have to understand this. And this is what one theologian had said. He said, when we we step back and we begin to think of all this, man does not endure the wrath of God because he never heard of Christ. Man endures the wrath of God because he's guilty before a holy God. And all men are without excuse. Natural man suppresses the truth and unrighteousness even though he knows God in the sense that it's evident that God has existed. And what does man do? He turns to idols. He turns to his own creations in order that he can carry out the desires that he, that he wants. God has made himself known. He makes himself known through creation. He makes himself known through the conscience as the apostle will go into in chapter 2. But this is important to ask this question as well. If God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, he's made himself known, they suppress the truth, what standard exactly is God holding them to? What is the standard by which God is saying, this is unrighteousness, this is rebellion, It seems as if God is holding them accountable to his law. Not the laws of the sabbatical year, letting your debts go free and various things like that. But when you take the moral aspects of the moral law and the civil law, It seems as if God is holding nations accountable for that. Some may object and say, well, that just doesn't seem right. Because what we've been taught and what we go by is that God has only held the nations accountable to the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments. And I heard one guy say the other day, and not just the full Ten Commandments, but when you're doing, when you're governing society, you need to just use the second tablet of the Ten Commandments and then rely on natural law. Well, we see natural law only brings about sin and misery because men suppress the truth and unrighteousness of what they know about God. The second tablet of the law really has no meaning unless you have the first tablet. Now, does God hold nations accountable for aspects of the moral law and the civil law? Well, it seems as if he does. In Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 18 And this is repeated on into Leviticus as well. But here's what he says. After talking about all these various 
acts of sexual immorality. He says in verse 24, Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled, therefore I have brought its punishment upon it, so the land has spewed out its inhabitants. But as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not do any of these abominations, neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations, and the land has become defiled, so that the land will not spew you out, should you defile it, as it is spewed out the nation which was before you. For whoever does any of these any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among their people. Now, this isn't in reference to just the Ten Commandments. This is in reference to the many other laws that he gives. And it's said also later on in Leviticus, speaking of the rest of the laws that he goes into. The nations that he has in mind, of the nations that are there, you can read about them in Deuteronomy chapter 7. You've got seven nations that are being referenced here. Seven nations that the Lord is going to drive out of the land and establish his people in who are committing these abominations who had never had the written revelation of God. And God is saying, I am holding them accountable for all of these things. You don't do them. That's why I'm driving them out. That's why I'm bringing punishment upon the land. You have the, righteous, the righteousness of God, which is across the board. Not just with the first tablet, or the, rather, not just with the second tablet of the Ten Commandments, but the first as well. And then all the expressions of the Ten Commandments when you get into the rest of the civil laws. And understand that too, that the rest of the civil laws are just expressions of, of the Ten Commandments themselves. Speaking of idolatry, speaking of murder. The commandment says, thou shalt not murder. Well, what happens if you're in this situation? Well, the law covers that. Well, what happens if it's in this situation? The law covers that. We make a difference between murder and manslaughter. What happens if two men are fighting and one accidentally kills the other? What do you do? The law covers that. What happens if you don't establish your home in such a way that it's safe for people to come over and someone comes over and they die? Who's accountable for that? Well, the law covers that. So there are things that are expressions in the civil law that, that are indeed expressions of the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments. And it seems as if God is holding nations accountable to that, just as he did the seven nations uh, that the Israelites were driving out. There is a standard of righteousness. And when nations break that, that is why his wrath is revealed from heaven. That is the standard. <clears throat> now he says... Not only do unregenerate men suppress the truth and unrighteousness, that particular truth is the existence of God and his, his attributes being clearly seen. But he goes on to say this, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. They knew. They didn't honor him as God. Instead, they want to tear their fetters and their cords from him. They don't want his authority over them. And they don't give thanks for all the good things that God has brought about for them. They don't give thanks for every breath that they're able to take every single day. That's not their error. It's God's. They don't give thanks for all the good things that come about in life. 
all the joys that they are able to have in life, all the provisions that they have. They have food to eat every day. Who do they thank for that? That's God. They don't give thanks. They want his authority um, removed. They have no desire uh, to live uh, for the glory of God. You know, we remember that um, many people desire to, to cast away the authority of God because they want to live how they want to live. As Jesus said, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Uh, one of the um, apologists that, that I really enjoyed um, was uh, Dr. Ron Carlson. And Dr. Ron Carlson, as he would lecture at various uh, universities and all of that, he was lecturing in the science department, and he was giving a lecture on uh, creationism against evolution and giving evidences for it. The, the man who was uh, the teacher there, the professor, had said to Carlson, you know, that's really good science, but I'm still choosing not to believe that. He says, okay, well, why, why are you not going to believe that if you think that it was good science? He said, because if, if I choose not to believe it, then I can live however I want and not have to contend with any thought of a judgment thereafter. Man doesn't like to think about what is to come. It's interesting that you have Karl Marx, who made the statement that religion is the opiate of the people. One writer who was writing against Karl Marx he said this, A true opium of the people is a belief in nothingness after death, the huge solace of thinking that our betrayals, greed, cowardice, murders, that we are not going to be judged. It is absolutely right. That's why the scripture says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. That's where Paul says here, Professing to be wise, they became fools. They became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. What does man do whenever he wants to cast away the authority of God over him? Well, he comes up with new gods. He comes up with, with gods that, that are after his own liking, that are part of creation, because man cannot get past anything that's in creation. He can't fathom a God who is not part of creation. That's why you have, at least within Hinduism, over 330 million gods because everything is a god. And it's all creation. And the ridiculousness of, of idolatry is expressed in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 44. Verse 9. Those who fashion a graven image... Are all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit? Even their own witnesses fail to see or know, so that they will be put to shame. Who is fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it. With his strong arm, he also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works with it. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of a man, so that it may sit in a house. 
Surely he cuts a cedar for himself. He takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself. Among the trees of the forest, he plants a fir, and, it, and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them, and he warms himself, but he also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes, a grave, makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat as he roasts the fire and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm, I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They do not know, nor do they understand, for he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see in their hearts, so they cannot comprehend. No one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire, and also have baked bread over the coals. I roast meat and eat it. Then I make the rest into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. Now what is Isaiah saying? Basically, Isaiah is saying, how dumb. How ridiculous is this? You plant a tree. The rains are necessary to make the tree grow. Finally, the tree grows. And then you go and you cut it down. And you split it in two. And with this, you begin fashioning your God. Well, you get hungry. So you take the other half of it. And you build a fire. And you begin to make your meal. And then you're eating your meal. You finish your God. And then you set it up. And then you bow down to this block of wood. And you pray to it and say, deliver me. Not remembering that you took it from the same lump of, of, of this over here that you used to feed yourself. But that, and, and man doesn't grasp that. He doesn't contemplate that. He doesn't remember. Because his foolish heart is darkened. He makes a God of his own liking. And the foolishness of it all, we can clearly see. But this is what man chooses to do is to bow down and worship a block of wood. Or, or maybe the god is of iron or whatever. He exchanges the truth of God for a lie. He exchanges the glory of the incorruptible God for that of corruptible creation. That's what natural man has always done. That's what natural man continues to do. And we may ask that question, as we were talking about before. Well, man isn't making idols. He's not making anything from a block of wood. He's not bowing down and worshiping it. But is man still committing idolatry, even here in America? Yes, he is. In Luther's catechism, he asked this question, what does it mean to have a God? Answer, a God is that to which we look for all good and in which we find refuge in every time of need. You don't have to have a block of wood to do this. Man comes up with numerous things that are his God. Some of these things are very evident. We, we've talked about before, especially going through Ecclesiastes. Money, wealth, that can be a God. If that's where all your dependence is, that's where your joy is, that's what you live to do is to make money and to have your wealth, sure. For others, it might be power. And realize this, that with these things that we're talking about here, if you take it away and their life falls into despair, that was a good demonstration and an evidence that this is what I placed my hope in. This is where my joy was. This is... This is where I found all my good and my refuge. 
power, of fame, people. That's a very interesting one, isn't it? How can people become a god? Again, it goes back to where are you finding your good and your refuge? Where's your hope? Where's your peace? You're trying to find it in people. In acceptance. Acceptance can become a god. Become your own idol. You're doing things simply to get acceptance from other people. Because especially in our culture today, if you even remotely talk about some of the issues of our day, I'm thinking about getting an abortion. I'm thinking about transitioning. I'm feeling like I might be gay. What then is the culture going to do? They're going to surround you. Oh, we're here for you. We want to support you. You're accepted with us. And they start giving you all kinds of attention. And what does that become? That becomes your security. That's where, that's where your refuge is. is in the acceptance of other people. Which a lot of these folks fell into that trap. These things are from the heart of man. That is darkened in his understanding. Some of these things that, that are going on today are just so outrageous. And yes, it, it, it does. We, we look at it and we, we, we get angry. Because we, we can't fathom. It's, it's like as Isaiah was talking about the one who just made this God himself and he fashioned it and he bows down and worship. But he doesn't remember what he just did. And we look at that and we say, how can this be? Do you not see this? And so we look at the things in our own day especially with the issues of our day. And we get angry because we can't figure out how can you not see, why are you not thinking rationally? You're going to let a trans woman go fight other women in the UFC. And, and here, we're so against, and we should be, we're so against men beating women, obviously. But then you can sit back and be like, oh, well, that's not a woman. Even though he just fractured her skull, that's not a woman. And that's what he did do, by the way. Or in other sports, how about powerlifting? Let a man dominate him. Or track. Or swimming. Or any of these other things where you kind of wonder where all the feminists are. Like all you feminists are all about, you know, men not having power over us and, and we're independent of men. And then here you're going to let a man dress as a woman and dominate you. How does that work? And nobody says anything. How does that work? That's also receiving the just judgment of God in the sense of allowing sin to take its course. And producing the misery that it does. We see that. We get angry. At the same time, though it upsets us and we get aggravated and we get angry, you have to remember this, that this is the state of the unbelieving people. You know why it is that the man who creates a God and he fashions it and he bows down and worships it, he doesn't see anything else because his mind is darkened. He's in darkness. And that's where you and I were. 
Because here, here in this passage, when he talks about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, that was us too. God's wrath was, was revealed against us in our unregenerate state. Oh, well, we kind of scratch our head and we say, well, how can that be if we're the elect of God and God has chosen us before the foundation of the world? Yes, but God had an appointed time in which he brought us to faith. The time beforehand was a time in which we were committing rebellion against the Lord. And so our consequences of our choices took its course. We still had to deal with the misery and the guilt and the sorrow and everything else that was brought about. We were once in this same state. And only by the mercy and the grace of God did he deliver us. For no other reason then he simply chose to. So when we look at that, we can't say, well, I deserve this more so than them over there. Or we say things like, oh, Lord, I wish you'd come back now because you really need to show these people who you are. And we don't think to ourselves, oh, Lord, delay just a little bit longer so that maybe these folks will come to faith. If it be your will, just tarry a little longer. Just wait just a little bit longer, that maybe through the influence of others in their life, especially if they're people that you know, maybe you might open their eyes that they too can see and live. But are we thinking that way? We want to just write it off, write them off. Be done. That's the easy way. Would we not rather see the grace of God being extended to them and to see them to come to faith than to, to express the joy in the Lord of, oh, Lord, you delivered me from this. Thank you. Because that's what he did for us. That's what he did for you and me. Why would we deny that to others? Because the fact of the matter is this, if it weren't for the grace of God in us, we would be out there cheering them on as well. Only by the grace of God did we come to a knowledge of Christ. Did we receive that true knowledge of God to be delivered from our idols, idols that you had in your life and that I had, to be delivered from sin's misery, delivered from that spiritual blindness? All by a pure act of grace. Through Christ, we understand very clearly this is the only way that we may know God. While general revelation leaves all men without excuse, what unregenerate man needs is the good news. That special revelation of Christ, because that's what brings people to faith. So, dear friends, even though it's upsetting at times, and even though we get angry and we get aggravated, let us not forget, as John Wesley said, watching a man go to the gallows, but by the grace of God, there go I. Let us remember that. Let us appreciate, absolutely, the gospel that was delivered to us of, of the work of Christ and who he is and all that he did and 
and uh, to appreciate even more so that it is by faith alone and no works that we have to do in order to come into the presence of God. Let us remember that and reflect upon it and, and be so grateful and give thanks to God and to live for God. But let us not forget, too, where we came from. Let us not forget what God has delivered us from, that perhaps our hearts will be softened even more so to reach out to those who do not know God. And I pray that that is in exactly what we would, that we would do, that the Spirit of God would bring that about in us. He gave you eyes to see. We need to be praying that God would give others eyes to see. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this portion of your word. Thank you for all that we learn from it. Father, how can we ever say thank you enough? Your wrath was revealed against us because of all of our ungodliness and unrighteousness. All the times in which we suppressed your truth and unrighteousness that we may continue, that we would have continued in, in the lives that we were leading. Thank you for intervening in our life. Thank you for bringing someone else into our life who preached the gospel to us and that the Spirit of God applied it to our hearts and brought us to faith. Father, I pray for all of us that, that we would seek to be the instrument in your hand in which others may come to faith. People that we know, people that we love, who are still in darkness. Use us mightily, Father. Use us as instruments in your hand to accomplish whatever you desire. And we pray, Father, that those whom we know and love that are in our families and, and friends, uh, that you would grant them that saving revelation knowledge of Christ, if it is your will. Father, we pray ultimately that your name would be glorified above all things, that you would continue to teach us, uh, produce in us such a, a greater love and commitment to you, recognizing where it is you brought us from. Thank you for transferring us from the kingdom of darkness into the marvelous light of your Son. To you be the praise, the glory, and the honor in all things. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's, all of God's children said, Amen.